You may be seated. Scripture reading will be from James 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. great to look at tonight's assembly and see a number of guests, among whom is uh, Gary Montgomery. I said this on a number of occasions, and I think even when Gary was present with us for a gospel meeting a few years back, I don't know that I've ever followed anybody that was a harder working local preacher than Gary Montgomery. Good to have him here tonight. Let's keep him in our prayers and our thoughts as he serves the Lord, and it's good to see him. Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That probably is a prayer that many of us should more often pray. I know I should. Psalm 141 and verse 3. There's an epitaph that says, Here lies Arenella, who passed from this life on the 24th of May. It was then she learned to control her tongue. Think about how true things like that really are. The children have it right, and we haven't had them sing this song in a while in Pew Packers, but I'll put a request in. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. How wise, how true. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Proportionately, no book in the New Testament has more to say about our words, our speech, than the book of James. Open your Bibles to James chapter 3, and we'll survey the chapter. But in looking at the book of James, notice how practical and how common sense he is in relating to all of us truths about spiritual maturity. When you look at James chapter 1, what you're going to see is James is dealing with our will. How we should look to God in times of trial and temptation. And that's where our will needs to be going. To God, our will. W-I-L-L. Then you look at James chapter 2 and you have the great discussion of works. First of all, how we treat others... And it should be without partiality or prejudice, James 2, 1 through 13. Then he deals with our works and how they are an expression of a loving, humble, active faith. James 2, 14 through 26. 
That brings us to James chapter 3 and dealing with our will. If it wasn't for my will, I wouldn't have any problems with God. Would you? And if it wasn't for my actions, God would not have any problems with me. But then we get to James chapter 3 and notice verses 1 through 12, and he deals with our words. Oh, be careful of the words you say and keep them soft and sweet. You never know from day to day which words you'll have to eat. James 3, 1 through 12 has a lot to say about our works. And he sounds so much like Jesus in penning these words because the words of Jesus said, Matthew 12, 34 through 37, By your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned, and you'll give an account to God for every idle word spoken. Then the last section of James chapter 3, James 3, 13 through 18, deal with wisdom. We're halfway through the book, a little over halfway, and he's already dealt with our will, our works, our words, and wisdom as opposed to the wisdom that is from below, that is earthly and sensual and devilish. The Bible as a whole says a lot about our speech, you know. I think about Paul in Romans chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. In Romans 3, 13 through 15, Paul mentions five body parts, organs, if you will. He mentions our throat... He mentions our mouth. He mentions our lips. He mentions our tongue. And he mentions our feet. Four out of five of those have to do with our speech. And he's talking about sins, the way we sin. And if you're like me, it's five out of five because often my feet are in my mouth. How about yours? The best of people may well have problems with their speech. It's not something to which preachers are immune. It's not something to which elders are immune. It's not something to which longtime Christians are immune. We can have a problem with our speech, with our words. I think of Moses in Psalm 106 and verse 33. The Word of God says, Moses spoke rashly with his lips. Psalm 106, 33. Have you ever spoken rashly with yours? Have I? I think of Job, that man of great faith, even when suffering. And Job 40 and verse 4 records Job as saying, I am going to put my, mouth, my hand over my mouth lest I should speak again improperly, hastily. Even as good a man as Job, you see, had to deal with the temptation to speak rashly, hurriedly, thoughtlessly, wrongly. How about Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter 6, 
Verses 1 through 9, Isaiah is willing to see the sin of God's people and to speak out against it. But when he sees something of God's holiness, he says, I am a man undone. Woe is me! I'm a man undone. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of unclean people. That's Isaiah. And yet he is the prophet of the Old Testament that lifts up our Lord so beautifully as the servant of the Lord. How about Peter? In Matthew 26 and verse 33, another great man of God says, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Matthew 26, Terry was talking about just a few moments ago in the Lord's Supper meditation. But the chapter ends in verses 69 through 75 with Peter denying Jesus and understanding the gravity of what he'd just done and the idle boast that he had made to Jesus. And he goes out and weeps bitterly. Have you ever out of pride made a boast that you didn't live up to? There's a father up above and he's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Now we're ready for James chapter 3. For James chapter 3... Let's look at the first 12 verses, and again, they deal with our words. Four basic observations, I move quickly. Observation number one from James 3, 1 and 2. Christians must not aspire to becoming teachers too hastily. I repeat, Christians must not aspire to becoming teachers too hastily. Now there are many passages throughout God's Word, Old and New Testament, that talk about speaking the Word of God. But if a person has the wrong motivation, maybe the motivation is pride and ego and status, that individual is not qualified to teach just yet. Secondly, a person may not know how to communicate. So not only is the matter of motivation important, the matter of communication is because the message that must be communicated is God's message and it needs to be proclaimed and communicated as well as we can as human beings. Amen? It may be that one who wants to be a teacher doesn't know the Word well enough. It may be that they couldn't say something in an appropriate way if their life depended on it. You know, there are some people that have the gift, and I don't think it came from God, of misspeaking. We all have the right to be silent, and what James 3 and verse 1 and 2 is indicating is that people who are not properly motivated and who do not have the ability to communicate, be quiet. Think about this, James 1, 19. Every chapter in James mentions this type of thing. James 1, 19 talks about being slow to wrath. 
Because the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God, but it also says be slow to speak. James 1.26, if any man doesn't know how to bridle his tongue, that man's religion is vain and useless. In James chapter 2 and verse 12, so speak you as men who will be judged by the perfect law of liberty. Those who lack mercy will be judged accordingly. Then you've got the words of James here in James chapter 3 concerning the tongue. Look at James chapter 4 verse 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. That's one of those passages that's not hard to understand, but it's hard to apply. James 5. In James chapter 5, notice verse 12. Do not swear. Swear not at all. Words. And thinking about our words and going back to what's being said on not being many of you teachers, knowing that you'll receive the stricter judgment, our motivation and our communication are important, but also our relations. If a person has the wrong motivation, if a person has problems communicating with communication, and if a person has problems with relationships with God and really doesn't care about having solid, healthy relationships with others, that person's dangerous in the pulpit. That person's dangerous in the classroom. Sometimes the one who can be guilty of the most harm in the church is a preacher or teacher who believes that they can teach but it's not thought enough about motivation and communication and relations. What James is kind of wanting the church to understand, y'all, in these opening verses, in many things we all stumble. And the idea I get from that is James is saying, I've had a problem with my speech. And if any stumbles not in word, the same as a perfect man. Think about cutting people slack concerning their speech. But as Christians, being people of a high standard as it concerns what we say and how we say it. Second observation. The tongue has a powerful influence for good despite its small size. Look at James 3, 3 through 5. The tongue can have a powerful influence for good. You know, a tongue, the average tongue only weighs two or three ounces. And yet we can use words to encourage and to display love. Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth, but such is useful to edification that it might minister grace to the hearers. Ephesians 4, 29. The people marveled at the gracious words of Jesus when he was alive. He just spoke well. Luke 4, 22. He spoke graciously. Do we? 
When you talk about the tongue having great potential for good, even though it's small, look at the illustrations James uses. And man, he has a way to illustrate bits for a horse. You can steer a powerful animal with a small bit. And then great ships are steered by little rudders. Our words are like the rudder of the ship of our lives. They really are. There's a father up above and he's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Number three, look at verses five through eight. The tongue has a powerful influence for evil, though it is small in size. That's really what James is talking about. He's talking about a fire in a forest. Well, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. That's not what we mean when we sing that old camp song that young people used to sing a lot. But it's still true. And then James continues by talking about how that the tongue is a creature that no one can really tame. No one has fully tamed but Jesus. Think about that. He never misspoke. He never was quiet when he should have spoken. He never spoke when he should have been quiet. And he always said things the way that he should. James has this to say about our tongue, about our speech. He says, it is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Mark that. Because who among us hasn't heard words like that? And who among us hasn't spoken words like that? Fourth, from verses 9 through 12 of James 3, James wants us to see that the possibilities with our tongues create unique circumstances, so small, so little, yet so influential and powerful. And as James brings this section to a close, really, if, if I were to describe this, I would call it the Jekyll and Hyde impact of our speech. Remember the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? One meek and mild-mannered, one an ogre, wicked and evil, and one who would commit great crimes. Yet the same person was both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And notice what James says. We bless God and curse man with the same lips. 
The same spring produces fresh and bitter. The same plant produces one thing and then something else. And he shows the inconsistency and the difficulty of using our speech well. Let's move on to the next section. James 3, 13 through 18. If a key word to keep in mind was our words or speech for James 3, 1 through 12, now James 3, 13 through 18. The word is wise or wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? He sounds like the writer of Proverbs here. Get wisdom. And above all things, get insight. Proverbs 4 and verse 7. If you cry out for discernment, if you seek for understanding, if you search for her as for silver, and look for her as for hidden treasures, then you will find the knowledge of God and understand the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 2, verses 3, 4, and 5. Proverbs 2, 3 through 5. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9, 10. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who's spiritually mature? Well, people who are spiritually mature are people who want the will of God done in their lives. People who are spiritually mature are people whose works show an active faith and they're not guilty of prejudice and discrimination based on the appearance of someone else. They watch their words and weigh their words carefully. And they're wise and not foolish. They don't buy into what is foolish and worldly but rather wisdom that's from above. Notice what James says. Let them by good conduct show their works in meekness of wisdom. Let them by good conduct show their good works in meekness of wisdom. You ask a question, who's wise and understanding, and then he answers it. But then he goes on to talk about the wisdom from below and contrast it with the wisdom from above. If you're marking things in your Bible or just following along, think Galatians 5, 19 through 23, and the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Because in a matter of speaking, this is James's version of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The wisdom from below, the wisdom from above. All right? Look quickly. He speaks of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That sounds an awful lot like what we studied this morning from Philippians chapter 2. 
in the first four verses, you know, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or empty conceit. Selfish ambition, empty conceit, keep going, boasting, being false to the truth. You're either lying to others, lying to God, or lying to yourself, or some kind of combination thereof. Keep looking at James 3, 13 through 18 with me. He talks about, in this identification of the wisdom from below, he says, where it's present, there is disorder. There's double-mindedness. There's foolishness. There's every type of confusion and disorder present. And God is not the author of that. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. And then he says there's every vile practice. That sounds an awful lot, Brother Gary, like and such like in Galatians 5. Every vile practice. Now, Notice how he describes this kind of wisdom. He says, first of all, it is earthly. Do you mind earthly things? Philippians 3.19. More than spiritual things. He says it's sensual. It's not really concerning God and the things of the Spirit as much as it concerns the flesh and our wants and our desires. And then he says this kind of earthly wisdom is devilish. It's demonic. Its source is not God, but Satan. Now I know for a fact that these kind of things do come to our services. Because I've read Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to God out of pride, out of greed, and they hurt the church. And they lost their lives. Wouldn't it be something if God snuffed our lives out every time we bought in to and practiced worldly wisdom and not heavenly Maybe that's something else to thank God for. He doesn't do that today. He practiced divine church discipline in Acts 5, then and there. Then he deals, ladies and gentlemen, finally, with the wisdom from above. And notice the seven-part description, and then our time is up. He says the wisdom from above is first pure Pure in heart, they shall see God. Then he says, then peaceable. Notice the relationship. Purity first, then peace. And the whole idea is this, to really be pure, we're going to have to look beyond ourselves and look to God and His grace and mercy. Only then can one know peace. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Third, the wisdom from above is gentle. 
The wisdom from above is easy to be entreated. Hard to get along with and doesn't play well with others. Sounds like too many Christians. And yet Christians are to be pure and peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. Not hard to get along with. Notice number five, full of mercy. Full of good fruit. Without variance. That's right back to James 2, 1 through 13. Not someone that practices judging people on the basis of their pocketbook or their appearance or their ancestry. Their affluence, their education. And then he says, without hypocrisy, without anything that's fake or sham, but very genuine and real. And he talks about, as verse 18 concludes, and the chapter comes to an end. The law of sowing and reaping. That sounds an awful lot like Paul too. Galatians chapter 6. Sowing to the Spirit, reaping of the Spirit, sowing to the flesh, reaping of the flesh. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The harvest that is cultivated by those who are into the wisdom from above is a harvest market of righteousness. A bumper, a bumper crop of righteousness. Lives impacted positively. Lives transformed to the image of Jesus in a greater way. How thankful we ought to be that God takes the seed in us of longing to be people who have the wisdom from above and he promises a harvest of good things. Thank you for listening. We're about to stand and sing our song of encouragement. If there's someone here tonight that needs to come to Christ in faith and repentance and baptism, we implore you to do so right now. Do not be foolish. Do not delay do not offer words of excuse for your failure to respond to Jesus. And for us as Christians, may we be the kind of people that James speaks so glowingly about. People of maturity. People of Jesus. Let us stand and sing.